Thank you for joining us today for this episode of ACN Conversations. I'm your host, Doug Leslie. ACN Conversations is a digital resource of the Association of Christian Nonprofits, providing a wide range of discussion and insight with thought leaders, authors, and ministry practitioners. As always, this conversation, along with all of our previous episodes, can be found on our website at www.christiannonprofits.org backslash conversations. You can also listen to all of our previous episodes on your favorite podcast app, including iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Just search for ACN Conversations. Today, we're excited to bring to you a conversation that we pre-recorded several weeks ago with author Gregory Coles. He is the author of Single Gay Christian, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexual Identity, published by InterVarsity Press. I encourage you to listen carefully today as Greg and I walk through a wide-ranging interview about his long journey reconciling his faith and his deep love for Jesus with his sexual identity. He is faithful to God's Word, he's faithful to his home church, and he's faithful in his willingness to be transparent about his life. So as always, I encourage you to grab a hot cup of coffee, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. Well, Greg, thank you for joining us today on ACN Conversations. I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man with your studies, and uh, I just appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we jump into your book, um, I always like to give our guests the opportunity to tell us about who you are, kind of a brief biographical sketch. So just take a moment and briefly answer the question, who is Greg Coles? <laughs> yeah, so I am a PhD student studying English at Penn State University. Um, specifically, I study rhetorical theory, which is kind of like the, uh, the philosophy of how language works in society. Uh, and then I'm also a worship leader at my church here in State College, Pennsylvania. And I generally enjoy life. Hey, did you say dabble part-time at a bakery? Yes, indeed. At the bakery... <laughs> Uh, my my specialty is buttercream icing. On a, on a good day at the bakery over the summer, I'll make I'll spend like eight hours straight just making buttercream icing. I'll make like over my weight for sure. <laughs> that is a career in itself, man. Oh, it's fantastic! And you leave at the end of the day like totally covered in powdered sugar, uh, which is kind of uncomfortable. But at the same time, like of all the of all the jobs that leave you covered in something at the end of the day, a bakery job that leaves you covered in powdered sugar is like about as good as it gets. Hey, look, it might be uncomfortable, but I'm sure it's delicious. Oh, it's so tasty. And hey, the free stuff that you get from work, so tasty. (laughs) I would weigh 600 pounds if I work at a bakery. (laughs) If I were full time there, I might too. (laughs) Well, at least, you know, you can control your craving, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so a couple of things that um, we want to do, so a lightning round. In the the words of Chris Wallace from Fox News, we'll do a lightning round of questions. Quick questions, quick answers. It kind of gives people a roundabout view of your ins and outs and what makes you tick a little bit, okay? Great. All right, number one, formal or casual? Casual. Red potatoes or brown potatoes? Red. Hey, not me too. Nice. Ready whip or cool whip? Uh, cool. Man, so good of you. I feel like you already. You must be spiritual. <laughs> uh, melons or berries? Berries. Boxer or briefs? Or boxer briefs? Boxers. Uh, coffee or tea? Ooh, 
Ooh, ooh. Uh, mm, uh, tea, I suppose. Tea? You prefer, if you, had a, you have your dinner, you'd have tea. <laughs> well, here's the, I mean, that, if I gave the whole answer, it would be like an unlightning round. Uh, it's complicated, <laughs> but yes, I suppose. Okay. All right, tea, tea, tea will work. I'm okay with tea. Juice or water? Water. Dog or cat? Dog. I did have rodent as an option, too, if that made you. <laughs> I'll, I'll pass on rodent, although I did used to make jokes about getting a ferret. Did you? Did you, did you ever get I one? I did. No. My kids wanted one, and um, I told them no, too. So, <laughs> because, just because it's a rodent. I don't want a rodent around. Well, yeah. Milkshake or smoothies? Uh, milkshake. Cake or pie? Pie. There you go. All right. There, see, that was, that was painful, right? That was fantastic. Funny story about the boxers or briefs thing. That actually is an answer that is revealed in my book, if one is reading really thoroughly in the lines. So I, I, it's, I it's public information for the world. Hilarious. I, asked that, I knew that answer before I asked it. But, you know, I just wanted to, to round out to other things. So... <laughs> All right. So here's a question. So let's get into the questions here. Talk to us about kind of what came about the book. The book for those of us, for those who are listening, is Single Gay Christian, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexual Identity. And you started writing this book, not as a book, uh, but as a journal entry for yourself. Tell us about the process and why you you eventually made it into a book. Yeah. So the the deal was I... uh, around, let me think, this was in 2015, um, and I had just recently uh, come out to the pastor of the church that I was at, uh, and I came out to my parents also, and uh, in having those conversations, those conversations were the first sort of intentional conversations that I had, uh, where instead of just having someone ask me, and I couldn't think of a better answer, so I just told the truth, um, these were conversations that I had actually planned in advance and thought, I need to talk to this person and I need to think strategically about what this means for my life. Um, so I was beginning in that season to ask myself the question, what does it look like to, to steward my own experience of the world, to steward my sexual orientation uh, in a way that honors God? Uh, so so r- sort of right in the wake of having those conversations, uh, again, with my, with my pastor and with my parents, I wrote an email to uh, Wesley Hill, who's the author of the book Washed and Waiting, uh, and also Spiritual Friendship, and he was sort of influential in my own thinking on the subject. He's also the, uh, the man who wrote the foreword for my book. Uh, I wrote him an email out of the blue, and that email was the first time that I'd kind of set anything into words before, um, into, into written words. I'd only spoken things aloud before. And so it was in writing and it was kind of permanent for the first time. And I discovered that there was something really uh, cathartic and also enlightening about writing things down and sort of seeing myself reflected back on the page. So I began to write more and more. And at the time I was trying to work on a, on a novel, but the novel kept kind of not working. I was getting a lot of writer's block. So I told my I told my agent about it, and he said, you know, you, you should just take a break from the novel and just write whatever comes out of you. So at, at his encouragement, I, I did, and I, I so I kept writing more and more about my uh, my memories and my experiences with relation to faith and sexuality, which yeah, over time 
kind of blossomed from this thing that I could tell myself was just a journal that I was writing. And it became this book that I had sort of accidentally <laughs> produced. And so how did you, you mean it can't became like the length of a book that would become a book or did you say, Hey, I could turn this into a book. Yeah, I think what happened was it, it wasn't my first time writing something of that length. And so just out of force of habit, I structured it like a book. Oh, um, and so it had, it had chapter breaks and there was sort of an imagined audience in my head. Uh, but initially it was all kind of, it was sort of faked, uh, for my own purposes. Um, but, okay. but again, through all this, I had begun to ask the question, you know, what, it, what does it look like for me personally to follow God, uh, in the space that I'm inhabiting? And so, uh, so once the, once the book quote unquote was more or less finished, I started to realize, oh, it seems that I am a person who, you know, wants to honor God with this story. I've written this book. I have an agent. Does that mean that this is like a thing I should try to get published? Got it. Um, so, and so then I began, you know, talking with people close to me um, and sort of raising that question at, Hey, I wrote this thing. Uh, what do you think about it? And do you think I should do something with it? Or should I like burn this? You know, should I destroy it? Should I leave it in my archives to just collect digital dust forever? That's right. I mean, because sometimes you write things down, you realize, okay, that really isn't done very well. So let's just be done with that. Well, okay, that's great. I mean, that's good. I just wanted, I was just curious. That's a curious side note. So one of the things that people don't know unless they read the book, and you didn't cover it in your bio, so... Uh, but I think it's important to a degree is that folks understand that you're, that Greg Coles is comes from the idyllic Christian home. Uh, in that, uh, your parents were in ministry. They were loving. There's there was no major issues in your family, right? So, so tell people about your childhood. Tell us about your childhood, where you grew up, kind of what life was like. So, uh, yeah. So I grew up overseas in Indonesia. Um, we, my family moved there when I was three and then we came back to, or I came back to the States, uh, for college when I was 18. And, uh, and so, uh, my, my dad was an English teacher and my parents, uh, have always been ministry people. And, um, before we moved to Indonesia, uh, my, my dad was a pastor at a church in upstate New York. Um, and we had a, we had a fantastic family. Uh, I mean, Idyllic, certainly not in the sense that it was perfect because nobody's family is perfect. Right. right. Um, But in the sense that a lot of the, a lot of the sort of stereotypes that I heard about what was supposed to make a person gay, um, (laughs) especially things I was hearing from the more conservative Christian community was things like, oh, you know, you had, you had a distant father, you had an overbearing mother, you were traumatized as a child. And, uh, and and I would just tell people like, if you meet my parents, you would see that my (laughs) father is not, you know, very distant and my mother is definitely not overbearing. So, So, yeah, so it was, it was a, it was a home where I grew up uh, thinking about uh, life in terms of following Jesus uh, and, yeah. and doing my best uh, because I saw my parents modeling, doing their best to answer the, the questions they were asking in terms of who Jesus is, what the Bible has to say, um, and what it looks like to live lives that are sort of radically in submission to him. Yeah. Yeah. At one point in your book, and we'll get to that area when we when we get in more in the meat of the conversation, that you're in your apartment, and as, as a passing note, you're making applesauce. <laughs> but it was it was like this. 
you know, sidelight of, oh, and I was making applesauce, boiling apples on my stove. And, and I thought, that's just not the norm for suburban <laughs> Christian kids in the United States. We go buy it. Uh, it's, it's true. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, I've, even if, I think even if my, my parents hadn't moved us to Indonesia, I probably still might have been the sort of person who made applesauce just because they were sort of crunchy people. If you're familiar with that idiom, they were, they were the even before we moved to Indonesia, they were like, they were homeschoolers back when like nobody was homeschooling except the real weirdos. Um, you know, and, and they were the sort of people who grew out their hair and donated to locks of love and made homemade granola and oh, bought yes. things in like massive, massive bulk. Like, okay. like we're talking the peanut butter comes in like the 20 pound jugs and then you yeah, split yeah, it yeah. up with five other families from the church that we were that kind of family for so like you years. were already engaged in the hipster life. Yeah, I was, I was, I was hipster before it was hipster to be hipster. That's how meta hipster I was. Yeah. So tell us about, okay, let's get into the meat here a little bit. At what age did you proactively acknowledge um, to yourself, really, not just, not beyond the pubescent curiosity, but at what point were you willing to say to yourself, okay, look, I'm gay and accept it? Yeah. Um, the, so I think the, the, the landing in that place as a, as a conclusion and saying, this seems to be where I am and this doesn't seem to be a part of me that's likely to change anytime soon. Uh, that really didn't happen until the end of college for me. Um, but, uh, but beginning in puberty and then running all through middle school and high school and my college years, um, I had this growing sense that that was the state of things, but I lived in this kind of uh, this sort of tumultuous middle space where, where I would say to myself, okay, this is, this is my experience right now, but everybody's telling me that eventually things change, you know, eventually you pray enough or eventually you meet the right girl and she sort of reorients the state of your heart or eventually something will happen. Um, and so I spent, you know, I spent those interim years just kind of waiting for the eventuality to arrive. And the tail end of college was when I started to realize, I don't know if that eventuality is coming and I don't know if I can spend the rest of my life just sort of waiting in a middle space. So you waited in that, yeah, that's a 10, it's a decade of waiting thereabouts in that space of just waiting to see if it was going to shake itself out, huh? Yeah. And it was, uh, it was, a, it was a sort of waiting that was, I think, uh, if I were being perfectly honest with myself in a lot of that space, um, and somebody had said, okay, uh, are you gay? My answer probably would have been something like, well, yes, but I'm not planning to be. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I am for now. Uh, totally like I, I was a w- Right, right. Yes, but I don't want to answer that question until later. Uh, I have distinct memories of, of thinking to myself, you know, I would, I would see people give, give uh, testimonies of how God was working in their lives. Uh, and one thing I noticed about people giving testimonies is people love to give testimonies about like, here's what I was dealing with like two years ago, right? Here's what I was dealing with back in my 20s. I wasn't hearing a lot of testimonies that were like, here's what I am currently in the middle of. Uh, and so I remember thinking to myself, okay, if I ever am, am like forced to tell this story, I'm going to tell it retrospectively. 
I'm going to tell like, oh, that's the story of who I was back in my middle school years. Right. Uh, so I sort of chose to see myself uh, in advance of the moment. I was sort of imagining what I would look like in retrospect, but I didn't want to admit where I was in the moment. You were at a point in Indonesia where you still live in Indonesia and you are experiencing, I would assume, what is fairly normal who people who may think they're gay and they've grown up in the church and are surrounded in ministry and all those things. And I want to read this section and then I want you to want you to kind of expand on it just a little bit. I have a question here, but just give me a moment. Uh, this is on page 14 of your book. Uh, you said nothing fit. I wasn't in rebellion against God, except in the sense that any sinner caught in the grip of grace might be. I loved him. I had two loving parents, three loving older siblings, a host of dear friends, both male and female, and national upheaval aside, because you're in Indonesia, a remarkably untroubled childhood. I couldn't read into my past some trauma that hadn't happened, and yet there I was, an enigma, an impossibility, a twisted upside-down miracle. I prayed for God to turn the miracle right side up. I begged him to make me straight. One night when my brother wasn't home, I lay face down on the floor of our shed bedroom and stretched out my arms, imagining I was Isaac waiting at the altar, ready to give his life to God's command. Please, I said, I'm all yours. Change me, fix me, make me clean. And this is where I want to press in. When I finally stood up, my neck was stiff and my face and the tile floor were both damp with tears. I felt spent, empty at peace and I was just as gay as ever. When that happened, how did you respond emotionally and psychologically when you got off off that floor and after crying out to God, realized I still am who he created me to be? You know, I remember in those days uh, being really, really drawn to a certain kind of fiction and a certain kind of Christian nonfiction. Uh, and the things that I was most drawn to were uh, things that really pressed into the mystery of God. So one of my favorite authors at that time was Madeline Langle, uh, who's both famous for some of her children's fiction, things like A Wrinkle in Time, uh, yep. but also has some really fantastic uh, sort of expository Christian nonfiction. Uh, and she reflects a lot on this idea of God being sort of beyond our comprehension. And I think for me, uh, it was hugely important to kind of uh, dig into that, I, that reality um, because I found myself living in this, in this weird space where, uh, where I trusted God and, and the more I uh, prayed and allowed myself to trust God, the more I did trust him. And yet I was also experiencing uh, God meeting me that was not in the way I wanted him to or not in the way I was told I would be encountering him. Yeah. Uh, so I was sort of living into two sides of what felt like a really irreconcilable tension. Um, and so the, the thing that I think kept me kind of sane in those times and made for a more emotionally healthy childhood, uh, well, you know, as emotionally healthy as, as any of us were, I suppose, in our teenage years, because goodness knows, middle school is traumatic. Um, oh, man. But yeah. one of the things that kept me, kept me sane in those years was having, having a category in my mind to say that God is allowed to baffle me. Hmm. Would that be your, your primary? I mean, what, what, how would you respond to 
middle school kids, early high school kids who are kind of in the same throws where you were, would, would that be your counsel to them is uh, to allow him to do that? Certainly it would be on the list. That wouldn't be the only thing I'd want to say. Um, right. but, th but that is, I think, uh, one, one really healthy place to dig in. Because uh, one of the things that I think happens to a lot of kids who grow up uh, gay and in the church uh, is they come to, they come to uh, carry a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and also um, to struggle with the notion that God can possibly take delight in them. Uh, it's really hard to imagine yourself as someone that God put together and said like, oh, this is good. Uh, I had some genius moments when I put this human being together. Um, it, can, it can feel really hard to believe that. And I think one of the things that is so inviting about the idea of a sort of a side A or open and affirming theology uh, is that there's a, there's a more obvious answer to the question, you know, does God take delight in me? Did God mean to, for me to be gay? We can sort of answer that question really simply. Um, it's more complicated if one, you know, remains within the traditional sexual ethic uh, to believe that. And yet I think it's important for us to have enough space for the mystery of God to say, both, okay, I have these desires that I'm called to say no to, and yet there's still a way in which God, God takes delight in me. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good word. When you first came out, you came out to your brother, right? Um, still as an early teenager. I don't know, 14 or 15, yep. I, I would assume. Um, yeah. How long was it then before your other siblings know? And did you guys got to kind of have sibling conversations out of earshot of mom and dad? <laughs> oh, um, let's see. Well, so my other siblings, um, I didn't come out to them until that same summer that I came out to my parents. Uh, a lot more things happened that uh, summer. There you go. Um, uh, my, so the, so the people that I was out to in my family, uh, just my brother. Uh, and then I think I have sort of murky memories here. Um, <laughs> it's possible that my brother and I had some conversation with, uh, his wife or his, uh, fiance before she was his wife, right. um, before some of that other stuff happened. But the thing that's a little murky in my mind is I know when I initially came out to my brother, um, and then discovered like, okay, this is awkward. And now I feel like I should be saying that I'm like being healed. Um, so I kind of, I, I sort of backpedaled right after coming out to him, like, you know, like a week later, he was like, how's it going with like, you know, that. And I was like, ah, it's, uh, it's definitely getting better. Yeah. I think it's getting better. Um, and so I kind of wanted to like, right, right. I wanted to create this kind of like progress narrative for myself. Um, and so, uh, so I, really, as much as possible, I kind of tried to, to distance myself uh, from that. So I have these vague memories of maybe, maybe mentioning it with, with my brother on a couple other occasions. But I think in general, um, I sort of stopped bringing it up. And he was kind of reading me well enough to know, like, I think Greg would bring this up if he wanted to talk about it. And I think the fact that he's not means that he would prefer that I not. And so, like, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, so we spent a lot of years not talking about it, really. Right. Yeah. On to college. So you came back home uh, after high school, uh, moved back to um, the U.S., went to college. Um, and you 
you dated in college girls i did one, yeah, this, and one. this is kind of where um, I think well, this is this is the kind of spot where I found your your applesauce was was amusing because this was in the in the throes of that. But you dated a girl; it ended badly. Um, in that it was hard to because you couldn't put words to everything. You wanted desperately to be able to date her and be heterosexual and all those things. Then about a year later, you dated another girl. And this time, almost dated her, to be precise. But yeah, yeah right. That's true. That's true. Uh, but it was a little more difficult because you found yourself really wanting to be straight in order to be able to marry her and be able to date her and be able to. Uh, but you didn't want to make the same mistake twice, right? Is that that, right. Is that fair? And so I want to um, read a section of your book here, and, and then I want to ask you a question. Uh, on page 31, you say, well, 30 and 31, for two weeks I thought and hoped and dreamed of becoming straight and marrying someone like her. Well, no, not someone like her. I dreamed of marrying her, herself, no one else. But when I closed my eyes and prayed my dreams into reality, I saw Jesus shaking his head in the darkness. You don't understand, I begged him. This is my chance. There's no woman I could possibly want to marry more than her. If you don't say yes now, you probably never will. And I'll be gay and alone for the rest of my life. And this is where I want people to hear. I know, he said. And there were tears on his cheeks to match the tears on mine. I wanted to read that because it's, it's one of those things I think people don't get. That God's great love and joy in you being who you are because he created you. That because your heart was broken, his heart was broken. Hmm. And then you read this stuff. And then shortly thereafter, you talked about your happy disposition changed. Because you became, not that you were not going to follow God and love him and obey him. But... It, the disillusionment got angry, like everybody, like, because you're a human being, Greg. I didn't know if you knew that. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're allowed. But it's important, I think, for people, because specifically people in the evangelical church, like the church that I came up in, it was conservative. And we heard, I heard the same type of things that you talked about previously there about the reason people are gay. And, but because your heart was broken in that sense, and God's heart was broken because your heart was broken, and that's a good thing, and it's a touching, and it's a realistic thing emotionally and psychologically for a Christian to be able to understand that reality. Mm. So talk to us about the aftermath of that. Yeah, so... I think it's it's been really revolutionary, as you said, to recognize uh, this this God who who weeps with us, the God who inhabits our space. Um, I always think it's funny that the that the the like two word Bible verse that the that the little kids love to memorize is like right. Jesus wept, you know, because the only shorter verse we've got is Job three two. He said, um, That's right. <laughs> so just memorize those and you're and you're made. It's two verses for four words. Um, hey. And uh, and and it always struck me that there was there there was something really revolutionary about this idea of of a, a Jesus who weeps right it fits in with the with the God who who comes to earth who inhabits our our messy space right. um, and doesn't just at a distance kind of aloof say well you know you figure it out I've got things going fine up here 
um, but who, who journeys with us in the midst of complexity. Right. Uh, and so I think for me, uh, in the wake of, of that kind of moment, which, which was a real turning point for me, um, from living in that tentative, I think eventually I'll be straight, uh, kind of space to finally acknowledging, okay, that doesn't seem to be the direction that God is moving. Uh, and that is difficult. Uh, and it is worthy of leaping over or so it seems. Um, and yet God is with me in that space. Um, both weeping with me and dreaming with me of yeah. where I go next. Uh, I think it was so valuable for me um, because it meant that in the steps that I took beyond that, I felt like I could journey those steps alongside Jesus. Um, yeah. So because, because that life. moment, right, sure. Um, because that moment for me, the, the moment where, you know, in, in frustration and disappointment and anger, I felt like I needed to turn back again to the Bible and ask the question, wait, have I really understood this text rightly? Um, mm. am, I, am I really getting this correct? It was so much better to ask those questions um, with the understanding that I could ask them alongside Jesus, that he wanted to enter with me into that journey. Um, that was far better than feeling so alienated from him that I sort of felt like, okay, I revisit the Bible, but I shouldn't bring Jesus because we're kind of, we're kind of having a spat right now. You know, we don't talk to each other. So I'm just going to look at the Bible by myself and see what I conclude. Um, far better to do our wrestling, far better to do our journeying, far better to do our doubting uh, in the company of God, in the company of believers um, than to do them in isolation, I think. So for clarity then, and for me to, I'm going to rephrase just for my own clarity's sake, is it safe to say then because you had the experience where you felt like God was weeping with you and you were weeping, you weren't alone, that he was there, that gave you the freedom then to to be angry and to go back into the scriptures and look at them and ask tough questions uh, because you knew from this previous experience that he was there with you and it wasn't kind of a, a battle. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to go to the text and to trust that, um, that God was still good. Um, yeah. and that the thing that I found when I searched for the truth, no matter what I found that that too would be good. Okay. So did you, and this is the question I have it. Um, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway uh, for people who are listening. Um, did you go to the scriptures? Um, was there a piece of you as you studied that you wanted to find yourself looking for permission to live this quote unquote predictable gay lifestyle or was it, you were okay with whatever you found from the outset? I think it's hard to discern precisely what any of our motives are when we, when we come to a text. Um, I think there were a lot of competing ideas in my heart. Uh, certainly there was a part of me that would have loved to find, um, you know, permission for a, a different sexual ethic. Right. Uh, at the same time, there was part of me that probably found something comforting about um, just sort of proving myself right again. Well, this is what I've always believed, so it would be easier if I just keep believing that. Um, right. You know, and that way I get to stay in community with all these people I like and so forth. Uh, so there, there are kind of biases that weigh in on both ends of the conversation. Uh, and so my, my hope when I approach the text, recognizing that both of those 
um, temptations to lean one way or the other could exist. What I tried to do as much as I could was, was to strip those away and to try to get down to the heart of the text and to say, okay, what does this really say? Um, and, and again, just acknowledging for me, acknowledging that there was a temptation to want to look for permission and also that there was a temptation uh, to want to keep believing what I had always believed. Yeah. Um, to, try to, to try to both you know, be willing to let the Bible prove me wrong um, and to be willing to let the Bible say the thing that I didn't want to hear. Excellent. And that's a good, that's a good segue, because in chapter three, the next chapter after this whole thing takes place, uh, you kind of take on some of the narratives that uh, Bible teaching that's been taught in evangelical circles for decades, possibly longer. I don't really know. Uh, and you do so by simply raising questions about the texts, kind of out kind of in a um, Socratic method, just kind of asking questions. On page 35, uh, you write this. I say this in terms of what you had been questioning the previously. I say this not to defend revisionary readings of the Bible's approach to homosexuality, but to defend the instinct that makes us bold enough to raise the question. If we truly love scripture, we have to love it enough to let it prove us wrong. And at the same time, we have to love it enough to let it tell us what we don't want to hear. Talk to kind of in a, if you put your um, teaching head on for just a moment, uh, talk to us about the, some of the most prevalent arguments that you heard, or most of us, I guess, here growing up in a conservative evangelical home uh, about homosexuality. And what did you find when you did the deep dive for yourself? I think one of the, one of the most familiar things that I heard in churches uh, was just how plain certain texts were uh, on the issue of homosexuality. And what people would mean by that is I saw these verses in my Bible, and when I read them in English, they say homosexuality, and boom, that answers my question. <laughs> right. um, and so there was kind of this attitude that, like, yeah, you just read the Bible as if it was written in English for a 21st century American audience, and then bam, you're done. Um, and uh, and that, that you know, only works for so long before, um, before you find that there are other places in the Bible where we're actually needing to read with some nuance and saying, wait a second, but when we put this into English, that doesn't have quite the same uh, nuances that it does in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic uh, in the case of, you know, parts of Daniel, I think. Um, but... Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily have the same things going on linguistically. Um, and sometimes there are things about the context of when those parts of the Bible are written that are different, you know, understandably than our context when it's removed by more than 2000 years. Um, and so, uh, so that was something that, uh, that I needed to begin to ask when I really delved into the questions uh, was for instance, uh, in, in the, uh, 1 Corinthians 6 and the uh, 1 Timothy 2 passages that, that use this word that's so often translated uh, homosexuality, uh, or I think the, the NIV maybe says practicing homosexuals, and I think another translation says homosexual offenders. But the word that they're translating uh, is this Greek word uh, arsenakoitai, which is a compound word formed from uh, the, the words arsene, meaning male, and koiti, meaning bed. Uh, and so if we cram them together, you know, we have a man better, uh, which seems like if you have to, you know, assume what a word means based on the parts of, of its meaning, 
sure, uh, probably, you know, a man having sex with another man. It makes sense. But that's not always the way that compound words work in language. Uh, so, for instance, you know, in English, we don't have like a butterfly. Uh, the, the English poets who praise the butterfly were not praising like winged dairy products. You know, uh, we have to we have to understand what's going on. Uh, in terms of the linguistics. And the tricky thing about this word arsenokwetai is that the times that Paul uses it are the first times anywhere in the Greek corpus that we see it. Uh, so we don't have a kind of tradition of translation to rely on. Uh, yeah. And we're using a bit of guesswork. Now, once you dig into the term more, you find, um, I found that there are some really good reasons to believe that it is referring to, you know, uh, men having sex with men. I think that is the best translation of the word. But um, it's important to recognize that that's what we're doing, that we need to delve into the meaning of the word, and we can't just take it at face value based on what it says in English. Yeah, and for those, so for those who um, are listening to this and wondering, where, where did you land theologically on your study um, in terms of, in other words, why are you single? <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, uh, so my conclusion, I, I, I remain, you know, of a, of a traditional sexual ethic, which is to say, uh, I think that, uh, as, as the Bible describes marriage for believers, I think that's marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, and I think that sex is reserved for that context. Um, and, uh, so because of, because of the space that I inhabit, uh, which is to say, uh, exclusively attracted to guys and I would call myself gay. Um, and so not desiring to enter into an opposite sex marriage, I believe then that I am called to celibacy. Um, but, uh, it, it, and it, and it's one of the things that's so tricky about this conversation too, uh, is that a lot of people will see a word like homosexual, uh, written into an English translation of the Bible. And they'll say, well, you see here, the Bible's condemning homosexuality, and you're saying you're gay, therefore the Bible is condemning you. Um, and that's really to misunderstand uh, the kinds of categories that the Bible is thinking in, because Paul's not talking about sexual orientation. Um, right. Paul is talking about sexual expression. Uh, right. that's, that's the place that the Bible is, the New Testament is weighing in on our sexual ethic. Um, and so I'm trying to do the best I can to sort of yeah. recreate an understanding of that sexual ethic while also putting it in the context of what I understand my own experience of sexuality yeah. or sexual orientation to be. What I really liked about the gospel centeredness of that whole, that whole process was that you allowed yourself from a, even a predis predisposition theologically to ask really tough questions, to take it out with an open mind and really look at it. And you came back to the same place where you'd been taught, but now it's, you own that. You're not yeah. riding the coattails of your parents, right? Right. Or your family or your history or denomination or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, you own it. And that's a, that's a very, what I would consider a very gospel centered type of approach to that. And that's kind of what I wanted you to, why I wanted you to kind of flesh that out a little bit. Given that, that you've gone through that and you looked at all of that and you, you've come back to really where you were, you, you probably initially, uh, there are lots of people, even in ministry, that come to different conclusions. Sure. Uh, they're actively living, actively dating um, in the gay communities. Um, they're getting married. They're involved in their church. There are those who are actually 
uh, ministers in the in denominations uh, who are gay and married and, and all these things. How do you do you find yourself ever rubbing elbows there, uh, getting in conversations? I mean, you can't obviously w- walk up and say, I think you're wrong. You know what I mean? So, um, <laughs> I mean, that's not usually how I engage with most people <laughs> who I think are wrong on a variety of issues. Yeah. How to, how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever rub, do you ever rub against that? I mean, sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I do, you know, I've got a, I've got a number of friends uh, who are in that space uh, where they are, you know, uh, Christian and gay affirming, I guess we could say uh, in terms of the sexual ethic. Um, and I also uh, know some folks who are who are still very much in the sort of the the wrestling process that I was in a few years ago in terms of saying, OK, I'm gay and I'm trying to decide theologically where I land. Yeah. Um, so they're sort of, you know, weighing multiple options. I think uh, when I'm when I'm engaging. Well, let me say, first of all, when I'm engaging with somebody who's in the wrestling space, um, I think. I think it's really valuable for us to be people uh, who are safe to, to wrestle with and ask questions of Yeah, Um, in the same way, in the same way that if I were uh, pastoring a church, say um, I would want my congregants uh, to, to be able, for instance, to have doubt about, you know, who is God? Does God exist? Is God good? Um, Why are these difficult things happening in my life? Uh, How can any of this be true? If they need to ask those questions somewhere, I hope that they're asking them in the church. Um, but somebody asking me those questions doesn't mean that I need to say, oh, well, if you're wrestling with whether or not God exists, <laughs> then I guess my opinion's up for grabs, too. Um, let's right. just all be not sure if God exists. Um, <laughs> there's, there's such a thing as being uh, both confident, as confident as you can be of anything as a fallible human being, um, to be confident in what you believe to be true while also extending uh, grace and support to people who are unsure um, or even to people who, who land differently than you. Uh, and I think when it comes to, to, to those people who uh, understand the Bible's sexual ethic differently than I do, um, you know, people will sometimes ask me if I think the issue of sexual ethics is a sort of agree to disagree issue. You know, it's, it's like baptism modes or uh, it's like, uh, you know, how we take the Lord's Supper uh, or something like that. Right. Um, and to me, asking whether, whether something is an agree to disagree issue kind of is a, is a bit deceptive uh, in the sense that it assumes that I have some authority over whether or not people can disagree with me. Um, as if, as if my power to say to somebody, you may not disagree with me, therefore you do not disagree with me. You agree. Brilliant. Um, right. I, I don't get to decide whether or not people disagree with me. The reality is they do. Um, and the reality is some people do uh, in, and, and they do with arguments that were compelling enough to me that I almost believed them. Uh, so I'm deeply sympathetic to people who land in a different place than me theologically. And yet that doesn't mean that I'm sort of throwing my hands in the air and saying, well, you know, everybody's equally right. And the Lord just right. guides different people differently. And so, you know, just everybody do your own thing. Um, there needs to be a way in which we can be people of deep conviction on the one hand. Um, and yet on the other hand, uh, recognize that ultimately our job is not to determine um, 
whether or not others are allowed to disagree with us. Our job is to ask, in the midst of disagreement, what does it mean to embody Jesus to these people I disagree with? Yeah. Page 39, you write this. The road to celibacy for a gay Christian remains a distinctly complex calling to not only resist sexual urges, but to try to banish the thought of ever fulfilling them, to have no daydreams of a future romance, no wistful marriage plans, to feel like the very core of your sexual desire and the faith you hold most dear are at odds with each other. There are suffering far worse than this, but there's none quite the same. My heart has its own fracture lines, its own unique way of breaking. Uh, that's a great statement. And so my question on it, however, is, is, is that sort of the, the reckoning, if I can say it that way, I thought I wrote, but I don't know if that's the right word, um, that Christians who love God and want to obey him and follow him, that they've got to come to, they've got to come to terms of this reality. I think, I think that should ideally be the reality for all of us who are following Jesus, gay and straight, uh, is, is that following Jesus needs to be something that requires, uh, real and painful sacrifice. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think what, what sometimes happens is that um, across, across the spectrum, a lot of us are looking for a Jesus who's a little more convenient to follow. Right. Um, and so I think, and I think that's true, uh, regardless of where we land on the question of sexual ethics. Um, if we, uh, or, and regardless of whether we're gay or straight in orientation, if following Jesus isn't costing you something, um, then, then it's worth considering whether it's really Jesus that you're following. Um, and it's, it's worth asking whether you would be willing to give up the kinds of things that feel so obvious and easy to orient your life around. Yeah. All right. Good. So, cause this is, this is one of those things where, you know, you, because celibacy is hard out. Is it, is it different? Do you think for, um, is the weight of it different for a gay person than a straight person if it's if they're calling it to celibacy to some degree? Is it the same or is it different? I think it's both. Uh, it's a, that's a classic, <laughs> ride classic PhD ride in English question. answer for you. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit of everything is true. Um, you should run for office. <laughs> uh, you, you know, and, and here's why I think it's a bit of both. Um, I think in many ways, uh, the, the challenges and questions that we ask around celibacy in the church, I think those are true for gay people and straight people alike. Uh, and in fact, I've begun to suspect in talking to some of my straight friends, I've begun to suspect that the way the church talks about marriage as if it's this presumed end goal for everyone um, is in fact maybe causing some straight people who might actually have the vocation of celibacy to feel sort of forced into a vocation of marriage instead. Yeah. Um, but so, so there are, there are ways in which, you know, the, the questions that we ask, what does it look like for me to find intimacy within this calling? Um, and uh, how can I, how can I continue in faithfulness to Jesus, trusting that this is what I'm called to uh, even though the people around me keep saying things like, well, you know, surely one day you'll meet the right person and then you'll, you know, and people say this, people say this to gay people all the time, like, ah, oh, you know, eventually 
the Lord will find someone for you and then you'll be straight. We do the same thing to straight celibate people. We say like, oh, you know, you're not finding anyone right now, but you will one day, you know, when you're finally faithful enough to Jesus. We paint celibacy as if it's, it's like this, uh, this purgatorial default zone where like the losers have to hang out for a while and then eventually you get your act together and then you get married. Um, right, right, because you finally learned how to pray. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and so, and so I think, uh, in, in those senses, um, you know, uh, gay celibacy, straight celibacy, any celibacy, uh, going on in the church, uh, shares a lot of that in common. I think there are a couple important distinctions to keep in mind though, as we think about what, uh, pastoral care looks like, as we think about what loving our fellow believers looks like, uh, that's different within those spaces. I think one of the things, uh, is that, uh, if you're if you're celibate because you're gay, um, and and it's not looking like uh, God is desiring to change that about you, um, then what you're anticipating is uh, saying saying no, even if you meet the right person, um, and and you don't sort of you're, you're trying not to like have like some wistful marriage plan in the future, uh, whereas. A lot of folks I know who are straight and celibate sort of against their choice, you know, maybe because they haven't found the right person, um, but they're kind of holding out hope for the future. That's exactly what they're doing. They're holding out hope for a future in this life that, oh, you know, I think one day I'll I'll maybe meet a person. And if I don't, that's okay, but maybe I will. For me, I don't have that same kind of maybe I will hanging uh, at the end of my sentence. And so in that sense, because of because of the questions and the journey that's brought me to celibacy, I think there's a different experience there. I think there's also, we, we tend to come with a different set of baggage uh, as gay folks in the church. Uh, there's a kind of minority experience uh, as somebody who grew up being told that our experience of sexuality ought to be something other than what it was. Right. Um, and so I think a lot of us carry some baggage related to that, that makes our journey with celibacy complicated uh, maybe in some ways that uh, it's not complicated for straight folks. No, I, I will be quick to acknowledge, I bet their journeys have complexities that mine does not have. Right. Um, I don't know what those complexities are because I haven't lived them. <laughs> I was going to say, not that you're aware of them because there's no way for you to know that, right? So. Right. <laughs> if there are complexities, I haven't felt them. So, you know, somebody else will have to tell you about those. That's right. That's right. When you go through this, I know we're cramming this all into an hour or so, but this is a long kind of stretched out affair of figuring out who you were, who you could trust. Do you want to come out to them? Would it change their opinion of you? You were involved in ministry. You were involved in all these areas. You were speaking to folks. You were doing all this stuff. But good friends in these processes, those are really important, aren't they? Oh, yeah. So let me read something. Uh, and I want you to know, I'll ask you a question here. Page 54, uh, this is when you were uh, coming out to your pastor. Uh, and he said, he shook his head. He said, I want you to know, he said, how glad I am that you are ha- we are having this conversation. I don't mean that I'm glad you're going through this, but I've wanted for a long time to believe that someone like you could exist, and now you do. You said yes, though I'm not sure, quite sure why. Me neither, he said, meaning your pastor, but I don't think it's an accident. Maybe you can help the church think differently about this issue. Maybe you can help me understand it better. I don't know what you'll go on to do, but I know that you're not a mistake. 
And then later down the page, you write, it was impossible to look into his eyes the way they looked back at me and continue to feel the kind of shame that had clung to me for years. Don't get me wrong. I still felt ashamed for some things, for my sinful choices, for lusting and fantasizing and flirting with temptation, but not shame for my predisposition, not shame for my sexual orientation, if indeed there was such a thing. In his eyes, in his words, I found the freedom to stop apologizing for myself. I wondered how God might call me to live if it really was true that I wasn't a mistake. Tell us about coming out to your friend who was your, your pastor and what that did in terms of who you were as a person and how you were going to approach this. I think one of the things that I remember about that conversation uh, with my pastor was uh, that in, in sort of my initial delivery of the news, um, <laughs> And I was I was emailing with a with with a, a friend recently uh, who said, um, which I thought was a, was a really clever metaphor. He said, uh, you know, no no matter how how sort of kindly you try to dro- shoot a missile at someone and drop a bomb on someone, you're still like dropping a bomb on them. You're still shooting a <laughs> missile at them, um, and that's kind of how coming out can feel. Is like no matter how delicately you do it, um, you still sort of feel like you're delivering some, some major news. Uh, and, and one of the things that I remember about that conversation was just how normal he seemed when I, when I uh, told him I was gay, you know, as if, as if I'd been like telling him about like my vacation in Tulsa, like, Oh yeah, sure. Why not? Um, did, did you find it kind of an off-putting normalcy? Like, I don't know how to respond because I, I built this up in my brain. It definitely, it definitely was different than some of the other reactions I've had. And it's weird to be so braced for something. You know, you're like standing there, you've got like your knees bent ready for the impact. And then there's like nothing. And you're just standing there like, are you coming? Like, I'm ready, but I'm not seeing anything. Um, did, did you hear me? Did you hear what I said? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Once more with feeling. Um, and, and so I think... Uh, I think one of the things that was so transformative about, about all of that conversation, uh, not just his facial expression or, you know, the way he framed certain things as if they were so normal. Um, but one of the, one of the big takeaways from that conversation that, that just really impacted me was the idea that, um, that this, this news could be a sort of, an unremarkable part of life, a thing that didn't change uh, the nature of who I was in relation to my friends, mm-hmm. the nature of who I was in relation to God, um, right. that I remained me, the gospel remained the gospel, you know, my relationships remained my relationships. Uh, and this could be a piece of the true puzzle that we folded into that. Um, but it didn't, it didn't need to be this sort of earth shattering revelation. And that was, that was important, I think, because it made it possible for me to imagine uh, a world in which I became uh, more healthy and more whole in following Jesus without needing to operate just within a paradigm of becoming straight. Um, I could sort of begin to, to dream uh, a hopeful and holy future for myself that was other than the one I'd sort of felt stuck within. How old were you now when, when this was happening? Where, where, tell, give us a timeline of where you were in your life. Let's see. This would have been 
just before my 25th birthday. Okay, so post, post-college then. Yeah, post-college by a few years. Um, I had, so after, after college for one year, I worked for a church in upstate New York, um, and then I moved down to Pennsylvania, started my graduate degree. Right. And I think this, was, this would have been like my second year okay. of graduate school. Okay. And this is about the same time you, you came out to your parents, right? Yeah, that was just a, uh, like two months later, maybe I came out to my parents. Okay. All right. So roughly the same, same time. Um, and this is, is this the, the church you're still going to then? We're still leading worship and you're still. It is. Yes. The very same. So good. The same so lovely good. people. So fantastic. Now, of course, everybody knows because you wrote a book. Greg, right. So it's become inescapable. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like they're saying, I wonder, cause everybody knows. So, right. Yeah. Which want? has its own, has its own kind of charm that now <laughs> when people offer to like set me up with their granddaughter, I don't have to be like, you know, I'm just not interested in that right now. I can just be like, no, thanks. But if you'd like to buy my book, allow me to you know, provide you a copy. Uh, <laughs> I'm more than happy to, to yeah. send a copy of my book to your granddaughter. <laughs> uh, page 61, you write this. The, the evangelical church is a strange place to be sexual minority. There are so many different attitudes crammed into a tight space. The person you, who reviles you the person whose heart breaks for you, the person ready to cast demons out of you, and the person ready to scout a boyfriend for you, all sitting side by side, sharing a communion cup. And isn't that the truth? And then you write this, which I really appreciate, and this is right after you have a conversation in the book about um, kind of where the church has kind of gone off the rails here and there about dealing with um, homosexuality in the church. And you're right, I don't mean to disparage anything. Um, This is specifically about ex-gay ministries, about ex-gay ministries. I trust they've done a very good, they've done some good even in the midst of their incredible damage. And I do believe orientation change is possible, just like I believe in parting seas and multiplying bread and water turned into wine. But it's irresponsible for us to treat miracles like everyday occurrences. If we do, the miracles lose their wonder when they come and we shatter thousands of fragile hearts as we promise miracles in vain. If the only hope the church can offer to the sexual minority is the hope of orientation change, we have a weak gospel indeed. I 400% agree with the statement. So here's the question. Where has the evangelical church... I mean, there's so many ways to answer this question now that I'm thinking about it in my head. <laughs> so you'll have to kind of take a moment and pare it down a little bit. But where has the evangelical church missed it in the biggest ways in dealing with the, the sexual ethic in the church, specifically because they seem to tag homosexuality as some sort of greater sin than a heterosexual um, who's sleeping around every weekend mm. with somebody else, right? So they're, they're making yeah. assumptions when they talk about it. And so the bigger question is where have they missed the mark and how do they start kind of make the, the reparation process of regaining the trust? Yeah. You know, uh, one of the, uh, 
one of the one of the sentences that was in a, an older draft of my book, and then I changed things and it got taken out. But it's a sentence that I still have aspirations to someday publish somewhere. Um, <laughs> oh, tell us, tell us. <laughs> was yeah, this this will be this is its first uh, public unveiling. Um, it was the sentence uh, we prefer people who sin like we do, um, yeah. and I was reflecting on. What I what I was seeing in the church, which was uh, in in some of the church contexts I was in, if you had asked people, hey, should we treat homosexuality like a sort of extra special bad sin? They would say, oh, no, of course not. Definitely not. You know, we're, we we don't do that. Like other people we imagined. Right, right. right. Nonsense. Right. It's always other people who do that. And yet uh, sometimes what I would see is that in practice, um, people did exhibit a greater discomfort around that particular around questions of sexuality. Um, And if there was somebody who would say, you know, yay, uh, that would be handled in a very different way um, than, than, again, as you said, if there was somebody who was, for instance, uh, living with a person, you know, who was not their spouse. Um, There there seemed to be a different different set of gut impulses, even if the the rules on the books were the same. Right. Um, And and what what it seemed was, yeah, that we, that we, tended to be good at understanding sort of nuance and compassion and bringing people along into, you know, trusting Jesus and then telling them, Hey, like, as you trust Jesus, he may call you to some difficult things in terms of your sexual ethic, be braced, you know, and then we would make space for them to encounter Jesus. And they would be like, Whoa, my mind is blown. And I think he's calling me to the sexual holiness. I wouldn't have even thought was possible two years ago. Um, we, we sort of got good at doing that for the people who sinned like we did. Um, but then there were groups of people like gay people, and it would be like, okay, you should just know up front, like, Jesus doesn't do gay people. So, you know, about that. Um, and, and, the, and the whole conversation would just take on a, a really different tone. Yeah. So I think that, as you said, is, is one really important place to start, uh, is just to, uh, to take a posture that invites everybody to Jesus um, and then trust that as people, as people encounter Jesus, uh, that he will be sort of big enough and ravishing enough to capture their hearts. Right. Um, I, think, I think a couple other things that are good to be aware of in terms of where the church has been historically and in terms of uh, ways we can, we can be more, uh, more intentional and more sensitive now, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, um, but one thing I think that has been really historically problematic is the way that the church has um, politicized issues around sexuality. And, and of course the ways the church is political in general um, are worthy of many separate conversations. Uh, So I won't get too much into that, but I think the the most sort of remarkable example here is in the way, um, in the way some churches responded to the AIDS crisis. Um, So uh, not only, not only were churches not, not sort of taking an opportunity to say, hey, there are these people who have AIDS who are in need, and we as the church are called to help them. Um, but instead, in addition to preaching messages that said, so you see here, you know, they've received in themselves the due penalty for their error. This right. is, you know, this is their fault. This is their sin. And so they're just going to have to deal with it. Um, so churches were uh, politically advocating against uh, research on AIDS, against better care for people with AIDS. Um, and, and so they made it into a political issue that completely, uh, completely uh, absolved them of the responsibility, feeling the responsibility for 
taking part in caring for and loving people who were in need. Um, and I think that kind of us versus them mentality still persists yeah. in a lot of places. And it, and it persists, especially when we politicize issues around sexuality. So in the, in the great, you know, gay marriage debate, uh, leading up to the Obergefell decision uh, in the Supreme court, right. again, we had the same kind of rhetoric. Well, there's those gays and, you know, we're against them. Uh, and instead of being people who radically love Jesus so much that we want to invite other people into radically loving Jesus, we became these people with tightly bounded borders who wanted to make sure that we excluded people who didn't belong within our tightly bounded borders yeah. and that we knew that they were the enemy. And I think that that whole mindset is so antithetical to the possibility of bringing the gospel to folks who are unlike us. Really, it's coming to terms with the reality, how we approach says as much about um, our love for God as standing on truth, right? So it's how you approach the truth is as much as the process of what the decision is. That's right. Yeah. 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 I think, I think posture, um, you know, I think sometimes Christians, uh, they take their, their theological truths um, and they think that because this is the theological truth, there's only, one, uh, there's only one way that they can then interact with people in light of that, that truth. Um, so because this is wrong and this is right, uh, that therefore means that I have no choices in how I uh, approach people who think differently, people who believe differently, people who live differently. I just have to kind of like hit them with truth bombs, um, <laughs> right? Truth bombs, which is just right. this classic, you see it online all the time. And you see it actually from a lot of uh, more sort of conservatively minded with right. understanding that the word conservative is a mess one. But sometimes that'll be the posture is like, we're going to drop these truth bombs on people because it's the truth. Um, but as, uh, as, as Paul so rightly says in Corinthians, you know, you can have a whole lot of things that feel like they ought to make you a good Christian. You know, you can prophesy, you can do this and that. You can have the truth. Um, and yet, if you, are, if you are living your life in a way that doesn't communicate the radical love of Jesus to people, then that, that's not the truth. That doesn't count as really, truly living out the gospel. Um, so I think we've, we've maybe fundamentally misunderstood what theological truth is supposed to be for yeah yeah it's not a right good that's good i think i think that goes a long way and part of it is people's simple predisposition to it it's not that they're even cognitively thinking i'm going to really hammer them this time uh sure it's how they've grown up and it's just been it's just kind of ingrained in them and so it's the big kick for the evangelical church um in the west anyway is the proactive reframing in our minds and hearts uh, how to deal with this yeah and how to approach and how to posture ourselves and the words that we use and the phraseology and the emotion and all of it facial all of that stuff right um our hearts almost need to be renewed around the fact that yes they're gay but they're a human person sure and so don't don't assume that you know everything about them simply because of their sexual orientation. Just like if a, yeah. a drunk, a drunk who goes to AA, I wouldn't automatically 
you know, they're because they go to AA every single day because that's what they need. I'm not going to make an assumption about them. Right. Sure. So, and this is, this, you know, I was different. I'm not saying it's the same. I'm saying, right. In terms of the churches, how we view it, how we look at something. Um, yeah. We don't say, no, yeah, but, they're, but they're a drunk. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> or they're a, they're a philanderer or they're a, you know, whatever. Um, it, for whatever reason, we've kind of put a hook on the wall specifically um, for a gay right. person in the church. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember, I remember having a conversation uh, not, not too long ago with a, with a teenager um, and, and they were asking me for some advice and they were saying, you know, uh, one of my, one of my good friends in high school um, just came out uh, as gay a little while ago. Um, and uh, now they're in a relationship and I'm wanting to love them well. Um, but I'm also wanting to, you know, be, be true to what I believe and right. uh, be presenting Jesus well to them. Do you have any ideas about that? Uh, and I started out by, by asking her, I said, okay, do you have any, any straight friends who aren't Christians? And she said, yeah. And I said, and are some of them maybe dating? And she said, yeah. And I said, do you think, knowing the way public high schools are, do you think it's possible that some of them, some of your straight friends who are dating are maybe doing things uh, sexually that are not, you know, not what Jesus would call his followers to. And she said, oh, yeah, you know, definitely. And I said, okay, well, how do you interact with them about that? You know, the same things apply for your gay friend in a relationship. You don't need, like, you don't need a separate handbook um, to, like, well, you know, in the case of the gays, none of these rules apply. We need a whole... Uh, the, the same things are true. The gospel is still the gospel. Um, right. And loving people is still loving people. Regardless, right? Regardless yeah. of, of sexual ethic. It's still people. That's right. Yeah. Okay, as, we, as we wind up, wind down here, I want to read something on page 97 toward the end of your book, and then I, I want to ask you a question about it. Um, you write this. We don't like longing. Not in the 21st century. Not in America. We believe in satisfied appetites. We believe that the pursuit of happiness, which means chasing the thing you want until you have it, until you've gorged yourself on it until you've realized that what you thought you wanted wasn't really what you wanted at all, until you found a new object or to, to desire and begun to chase it again. Sometimes we're so busy pursuing the happiness of satisfied appetites that we miss the happiness of longing. My question to you, Greg Coles, is what do you mean by the happiness of longing? I think it was Lewis uh, who said uh, that the... Uh, the people who are, who are most excited, he didn't use the word excited, so I'm going to paraphrase. Sorry, Lewis. <laughs> okay, um, okay, that's fair. He, he says something along the lines of uh, the people who are, who are sort of most excited about the next life are the people who do the most good in this one. Um, yeah. And he's, kinda, he's arguing against the idea that like hoping for heaven is going to, to make you kind of worthless for the world, right? So heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Um, he's, he's arguing against that. And he's saying, no, actually um, being, being oriented towards desire for a thing that is still yet to come is the right way to live well in the present. Um, and, and I think uh, that mentality for those of us who are, who are gay and celibate. And so therefore are saying uh, there's a kind of intimacy that I long for, 
Um, and that longing is not going to be fully met until I am with Jesus. Um, and, uh, and I understand in the same way that all of us do, we sort of finally understand what our longings that are partially fulfilled in this life were really ultimately meant to be for. Um, so, so I think there's value in, in any of us uh, who love Jesus saying, my life is oriented around this longing for a future fulfillment that is coming. Uh, and in the meantime, the desire for that, it sort of gives us a drive to move forward. Um, and it, it gives us a way to, to think about the, uh, the things that we do right now to order them in terms of where we're headed. Um, longing, I think, creates a sense of direction in a way. Uh, it, it, gives us, it gives us something to walk towards uh, so that we're not just kind of aimlessly ambling through yeah. life on earth, but we're walking purposefully towards Jesus because he is the object of our longing. And as we walk towards Jesus, then we discover along the way the things that we're meant to do until we finally reach him in glory. Good job. Finally, one last, one more question, one last question. What's the one or two primary areas of counsel uh, that you would give to leaders in the evangelical church or what they should keep, at least keep in mind? I know you've mentioned posturing and, and approach, but anything else at the very end here that we should keep in mind and with dealing this issue of sexual identity in their churches with their leadership, uh, when they have to deal with issues of membership and ministry leadership and outreach and all these kind of things. Yeah. I think one thing I would encourage um, is for churches to, uh, to be open to acknowledge the, the sort of theological complexity, the challenge that can come with this question, uh, especially for those of us who are experiencing it from the inside as people who uh, identify as gay or as same-sex attracted. Uh, I think there's value in churches acknowledging okay, this is, this is a conversation that's happening. There are people who think differently than we do on the question of sexual ethics. Um, and we need to equip people not just to tell them what we think the right answer is and say, okay, well, that's what we said. Just believe it. That settles it. Um, but to equip people to be people who are so in love with Jesus uh, and so, so much oriented towards caring what the Bible has to say that they will delve into the question for themselves um, and that they will, in good conscience, come to believe a thing uh, that, they can, that they can walk for the rest of their lives. I often, I often say, uh, I, can't, I can't walk a lifetime of celibacy on the basis of somebody else's faith. Um, right. And so, so if churches want to equip people who are uh, loving Jesus from a traditional sexual ethic, the thing we need to do is not beat people over the head with a traditional sexual ethic. The thing we need to do is live and love in such a way um, that following Jesus is going to be worth it no matter what it costs. And I think a, a second thing that I would, that I would encourage for churches um, is to be churches that where uh, to the degree that um, there are differences of opinion that are not sort of clearly spoken to on the, uh, in the Bible. So for instance, there is within this conversation, some debate right now about terminology. 
Um, yeah. Is it better for somebody to, to use the word gay or to use same-sex attracted? Should they not even say same-sex attracted, but they should just say they're wrestling with unwanted same-sex desires? You know, should they, there's, and there's, there's so much debate about terminology. Um, and what I, what I think I want to call churches to around that conversation is to not so much find the position that they think is correct and be totally committed to that and tell anyone who thinks differently on it that they are wrong. Um, but to leave, to leave some space uh, where, where there's not a clear biblical mandate, some space for people to, to walk within their conscience, um, and even at times to recognize that it may be possible that folks who are in different seasons of life, folks who are ministering in different parts of the country or different parts of the world, uh, folks who have different kinds of stories to tell, those people may all need to use different kinds of terminology. Right. Um, and I think uh, whether or not, I, I mean, I, I know some people who have concerns about the term gay, and I recognize, you know, that there can be concerns there. Um, but I think ultimately, if we get too hung up on the minutia, if we get too hung up on the terminology, uh, then what we're doing is distracting ourselves from who Jesus is. We're distracting ourselves from the gospel. So I think as much as possible, I just encourage churches to, uh, to, to sideline that conversation in favor of conversations that matter more. There you go. Is it inappropriate for, um, and this is, I'm asking because, you know, I don't know the answer, and maybe there's not an answer, but is it inappropriate if I'm asking, if I'm talking to someone who happens to be gay, um, if I see them have a facial construct after that term comes out of my brain to say, how would you like me to address it? <laughs> do, you want, do you want me to oh, say Oh, that's a fantastic thing to say. That's the best thing to say. I just, yeah, I'm definitely not one of those people who says like, I call myself gay <laughs> and everyone else should. And if you don't, like what's wrong with you? Um, I think... I think it's, I, I, and I think this is true across um, across folks who are who are Christian and gay or same-sex attracted or whatever, and across folks within the LGBTQ community, uh, some of whom prefer a term like queer over gay, uh, some of whom would say, you know, I I prefer not to not to identify with labels, uh, but people always feel respected by the question, hey, what language are you using to understand yourself? Uh, how can I respect you as we have this conversation? Right. Um, so that the things the things that we're talking with somebody about are the things that matter in terms of what it means to follow Jesus. Right. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it's, I think it's great to, to uh, enter into somebody's linguistic terrain enough that we can help them understand who Jesus is in a language that they can yeah. really okay. grasp and love. Yeah. Good. Because I've run myself into the ground, not around this issue, but around lots of other things simply because I used the wrong phraseology that people got offended at and they simply didn't hear anything else I said. Sure. Yeah. And I had no idea I was offending them. And so um, I, I, think I think it's important that people understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, you can correct me, I'm not, I'm not, please do, that don't be so tiptoey all the time. <laughs> I mean, they understand their where they are. And so to ask them specifically, I don't want to offend you by wrong verbiage. Uh, you know, how do you address your, you address it as being gay as being same sex. What is it? What's the terminology I should use? Is sure. Yep. Is freeing almost to them, I would assume, uh, so that there isn't an offense un unnecessarily. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think some of the some of the wisest and most insightful people who I've had conversations with are folks who, at the beginning of our conversation, will say, uh, "I just want you to know, like along the way, I might say some things wrong. Like if I do, correct me, help me learn." Um, and you know, I don't I don't know which language you prefer. Help me understand that. Um, so people who acknowledge, okay, this is going to be complicated. I may not know everything yet. I need your help to learn. Um, people right. who approach a conversation with humility uh, are are really hard to get mad at for very long. Um, if you right. know that somebody's heart in having a conversation is that they're humble, that they want to learn, they want to love you well, it's really hard to get mad at that person. Um, if somebody sort of waltzes in, sure that they have the best words for you <laughs> and, and sure that they already know everything about you, um, then even if they're right, it's hard to like those people. So, right. Uh, right. So the, so the winning option is always, you know, don't stress so much about like making sure beforehand that you've got all your, all your ducks lined up, but be more concerned about entering with a posture that says, you know, let me, let me learn, let me love you well. That's awesome. Folks, the book is Single Gay Christian, A Personal Journey of Faith and Sexual Identity by Gregory Coles. Greg, it has been a delightful experience. Uh, delightful indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and for those of you who are just listening, you'll have to read the book to get that joke. So uh, thank you for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Uh, we're going to commend this book to everybody. For those of you who are listening, we'll have it on our website at christiannonprofits.org. Just click on ACN Conversations. <laughs>